le forze navali dell'Italia fascista. Hello and welcome to the pilot episode of Flirting with Fascism and I'm your host Zubin. Imagine you're living in a state where the majority of citizens are Harry Potter fans and you have a government of hardcore Potterheads in power. There's also a sizable minority of Lord of the Rings fans living in the country and there's been historic animosity simmering between the two groups. Now As a Harry Potter fan yourself, you frown upon anyone in your family marrying a Lord of the Rings fan. You don't want your kids dating anyone who reads Tolkien. You won't even rent out your apartment to them. You'd prefer living in a housing complex that had only Potter fans. You always harbored a little bit of resentment for them. You'd talk in hushed tones about how fanatical Lord of the Rings fans were, how they were so wedded to their pet fairy tale. how they couldn't really be trusted but you'd always do it behind closed doors you always considered yourself and your fellow potter fans to be pluralistic in public it was expected to be politically correct when talking about minorities but now ever since these fanatic potterheads came to power it has become cool to be openly jingoistic about your pet fairy tale you feel empowered after centuries you've been allowed to unapologetically assert your identity as a potter fan to the point where lord of the rings fans are now openly derided in your social media cliques and whatsapp groups but you consider yourself to be a nice person you wouldn't approve of outright physical violence against minorities you don't identify with the more militant and violent factions of the hardcore potterheads and yet you're happy you're happy that this new government and its bombastic charismatic leader is showing these LOTR fans their true place you're having your schadenfreude moment but what happens once these pesky minorities have been put in place and relegated to second class status What happens when there's no external enemy left to subdue? Well, if history is any indicator, these zealots will then turn inward. They will then set up litmus tests for who among the believers is a true blue potterhead and who isn't. Because totalitarianism that thrives on the identity politics of us versus them will always need an enemy to justify its existence. So Perhaps you're a proud Potter fan, but you don't want to dress up in a wizard's cloak and a funny hat all the time. You feel that's pushing it a little too far. Well, guess what? Now you're going to be branded an evil liberal. It is people like you who are ashamed of Harry Potter traditions and diluting our rich culture. Or let's say the government raises taxes to build a grand temple in honor of Dumbledore. Well, Sure you're a Potterhead but now you feel this is a bit excessive you'd rather have your tax money used to build better schools for your kids or healthcare when you grow old so you and your liberal Potterhead friends decide to register your protest 
against this wasteful Dumbledore temple. Well, sorry to break it to you, but you cannot protest anymore. Because when Lord of the Rings fans were protesting for their rights, you were silent. You watched as your government of Potterheads subdued them with brute force and passed draconian ordinances making peaceful assembly unlawful. You were silent when those shouting on the streets were booked under sedition laws and condemned as subversives. Well, guess what? Now you are the subversive. Hannah Arendt says something interesting on this point in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, and I quote, The disturbing factor in the success of totalitarianism is rather the true selflessness of its adherence. It may be understandable that a Nazi or a Bolshevik will not be shaken in his conviction by crimes against people who do not belong to the movement or are even hostile to it. But the amazing fact is that neither is he likely to waver when the monster begins to devour its own children and not even if he becomes a victim of persecution himself. End quote. We learn from history that we learn nothing from history. I know Hegel's quote is a bit of a cliché, but if you're a product of the Indian education system, especially technical education like I am, this is absolutely true for us. So, with this podcast, I'm going to quote a wide range of books on the subject of fascism and totalitarianism, and I'm going to cite historical examples to show you that this resurgence in far-right authoritarianism that you euphemize as wink-wink development is boringly copy-pasted from early 20th century Europe. It was tried and it failed miserably everywhere. And I'm going to talk about how to identify authoritarian behavior and signs that freedom and democracy are in peril. The word fascism comes from the Italian word fascio, which basically described Italian revolutionaries from the late 19th century. They were peasants who rose against their landlords. But now the term is broadly used for any authoritarian and nationalistic right-wing system of government that practices forcible suppression of opposition and strong regimentation of society. Now I must add a disclaimer here. Even though this podcast is called Flirting with Fascism, I'll be citing various examples of left-wing authoritarianism and other forms of totalitarianism as we go along. So this isn't strictly a history of fascism per se. What distinguishes fascism from other totalitarian isms, and I quote Robert Paxton in his fantastic book, The Anatomy of Fascism, Fascism does not rest explicitly upon an elaborated philosophical system, but rather upon popular feelings about master races and their rightful predominance over inferior peoples. How fascism differs from other totalitarian ideologies, whether it is communism or Islamism, is that the rightness of fascism does not depend on the truth of any of the propositions advanced in its name. Fascism is true insofar as it helps fulfill the destiny of a chosen race or people who are locked with other peoples in a Darwinian struggle. 
and the first fascists were entirely frank about this. The truth was whatever permitted the new fascist man and woman to dominate others and whatever made the chosen people triumph. Fascism seeks to appeal mainly to the emotions by the use of intensely charged rhetoric. End quote. The masses have always gravitated towards rhetoric. Isn't that Narendra Modi's strength? A fellow who has never given an impromptu interview, a fellow who thinks climate change isn't real, but our ability to withstand the cold is diminishing, a fellow who thinks plastic surgery was practiced in Vedic times and cites Karna and Ganesha as proof. And the masses still think that an ignoramus like him is somehow better than Rahul Gandhi, in fact, miles better. Because the former uses rhetoric with great skill, while the latter is kinda more subdued, more of an introvert. He doesn't have the same oratory skills as 56-inch. British scholar Roger Griffin says, Fascism at its core is a form of populist ultranationalism. Allied to it is a conspirational view of history as a battle between the good and evil camps, between the pure and the corrupt, in which one's own community or nation has been the victim. In this Darwinian narrative, the chosen people have been weakened by political parties, social classes, unassimilable minorities, spoiled rentiers and rationalist thinkers who lack the necessary sense of community. The belief that one's group is a victim, a sentiment that justifies any action without legal or moral limits against its enemies both internal and external. Dread of the group's decline under the corrosive effects of liberalism and alien influences, the need for closer integration of a purer community by consent, if possible, or by exclusionary violence, if necessary. The need for authority by natural leaders, always male, culminating in a national chief who alone is capable of incarnating the group's destiny. Quote-unquote, Hindu Riday Samrat. The superiority of the leader's instincts over abstract and universal reason, the legitimization of violence against a demonized internal enemy, brings us closer to the heart of fascism. End quote. How eerily familiar is this? Notice how the Hindutva Brigade constantly harps on the Hindu Holocaust and the blood-curling atrocities committed by Islamic invaders, and how they somehow think it is alright to put those crimes committed by a bunch of medieval marauders from centuries ago squarely on the heads of a group living amongst us today, simply because this group subscribes to the same fairy tale as the medieval invaders. This is textbook bigotry. The otherizing of an entire people, pinning historic crimes on them, this is straight out of the fascists' playbook. If you've had the misfortune of reading any of these right-wing publications like Swarajya Mag or Op India, or scroll through the numerous right-wing Hindutva Twitter handles, you'll know that this victim Olympics and persecution complex are continuously peddled. For the Hindutva Brigade, seven decades of Congress rule was oppression on the majority. For them, everything that ails this country stems from it. It was almost like the Congress party was the next worst thing to happen to India after the Islamic invaders. In the book, 
how fascism works, the politics of us and them, Jason Stanley says, and I quote, The mechanisms of fascist politics all build on and support one another. They weave a myth of a distinction between us and them, based in a romanticized fictional past, featuring us and know them, and supported by a resentment for a corrupt liberal elite who take our hard-earned money and threaten our traditions. They are the lazy criminals on whom freedom would be wasted. They mask their destructive goals with the language of liberalism and social justice and are out to destroy our culture and traditions and make us weak. Fascist politics traffics in delusions that create these kind of false distinctions between us and them. End quote. Does that sound familiar to you? Persecution complex and victimhood are the keystones on which fascists build their fort. It is the means by which fascists will justify the violence they unleash on the others, the enemies of the people, the anti-nationals, the commies, the Tukre-Tukre gang. Every totalitarian regime in history has needed a Tukre-Tukre gang to validate its existence and justify its atrocities. For the Nazis, it was the November criminals. What happened was, Hitler propounded this conspiracy theory that the German army had not been defeated on the battlefield in the First World War, but was stabbed in the back by the enemies at home. Hitler convinced the masses that the Weimar government of the time signed the Treaty of Versailles prematurely and made Germany subservient to the victorious Allied powers. Of course, it was an outright lie. The truth is, General Ludendorff, the actual leader of the High Command, had insisted on September 28, 1918 on an armistice at once, and his superior, Field Marshal Hindenburg, had supported this. Both Hindenburg and Ludendorff had pushed for an immediate truce. The army, he said, cannot wait 48 hours. Field Marshal Hindenburg basically told the civilian government that the situation was so dire that if they didn't sign the peace treaty unconditionally, the remaining German troops would be annihilated. Now, the Social Democrats who formed the government at the time had only come to power in 1918. They played absolutely no part in how Germany's defeat panned out. And yet the Nazi propaganda was so powerful that millions of Germans firmly believed that these November criminals who had signed the surrender and established the post-war democratic government, indeed, they were the ones who were responsible for Germany's humiliation. They say a lie travels halfway around the globe before the truth puts its shoes on. Just like in India, we have our own set of myths, in which Jawaharlal Nehru is made out to be the anti-Hindu villain, while Savarkar was a freedom fighter. If I had one rupee for every ignoramus Indian who believes in the utterly stupid and ahistoric myth that the Congress and Nehru were responsible for India's partition because Nehru wanted to be PM. Well, anyone who wants to read up more on the truth of that bit of history, I recommend Frank Morris's Witness to an Era. But facts are inconvenient to authoritarians. Fascist ideologies need to manufacture enemies in order to justify its manufactured victimhood. Moving on. I've noticed a lot of centrists and right-wingers on social media will mock anyone who describes a democratically elected leader as fascist, 
they will quickly dismiss it as hyperbole. This myth that a democratically elected leader enjoys legitimacy and therefore cannot be called a fascist or an authoritarian stems from ignorance. When you use the term fascist, people seem to have this picture in their heads of a dictator orchestrating a coup by surrounding the parliament with tanks. In reality, most authoritarians have come to power through free and fair elections. And then they go on to scuttle the very institutions of democracy which they used to seize control in the first place. For example, Adolf Hitler came to power legally, even though the Nazi party didn't win a majority in the last free elections that Germany had. The Nazis got about 37% of the vote share. That combined with a few shabby backdoor deals enabled Hitler to become chancellor. Yet his initial ascent to power was very much legal. Alberto Fujimori won the Peruvian general election of 1990 by a 62.4% margin against a coalition of liberal parties. Even in the year 2008 when Fujimori was being prosecuted for crimes against humanity, for using death squads to murder political opponents, two-thirds of Peruvians still approved of his presidency in that period. The leftist authoritarian Hugo Chavez won the 1998 election with 56% of the votes and then went on to abolish the two-term limit on presidency, practically allowing himself to be re-elected almost unopposed as long as he lived. Now, I know a lot of Chavistas and Corbinistas will stop listening at this point. How dare I club their South American working-class hero along with right-wing fascist scum. I'm sorry, but a thug is a thug. And I don't care which end of the political spectrum he's on. And remember our definition, forced suppression of opposition, strong regimentation of society and economy. Chavez ticks all these boxes. So just because someone wins a fair election doesn't necessarily mean they won't have authoritarian traits or that they can't be fascist. The electorate has often put fascists in power. History will teach us, Hamilton wrote in the Federalist Papers, that of those men who have overturned the liberties of republics, the great number have begun their career by paying an obsequious court to the people, commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. Quoting Harvard professors Levitsky and Ziblatt in their book How Democracies Die, and I highly recommend this book to every Indian. Right now, it's absolutely prescient book. And I quote, The tragic paradox of the electoral route to authoritarianism is that democracy's assassins use the very institutions of democracy, gradually, subtly, and even legally, to kill it. End quote. In fact, fascist movements could never grow without the help of ordinary people and even conventionally good people. Again, in Anatomy of Fascism, Robert Paxton says, and I quote, Fascists could never attain power without the active assent of the traditional elites, heads of state, party leaders, high government officials, many of whom felt a fastidious distaste for the crudities of fascist militants. The excesses of fascism in power also required wide complicity among members of the establishment. Magistrates, police officials, army officers, businessmen. 
To understand fully how fascist regimes worked, we must dig down to the level of ordinary people and examine the banal choices they made in their daily routines. Making such choices meant accepting an apparent lesser evil or averting the eyes from some excesses that seemed not too damaging in the short term, even acceptable piecemeal, but which cumulatively added up to monstrous end results. End quote. Reminds me of fence-sitters and moderates who are willing to look the other way when the Karni Sena goes on rampage or when a terror-accused Sadhvi is elected to parliament. Look the other way because they believe in the interest of a greater good. Quote-unquote, development. Again, to take an example from history, consider the reactions of ordinary Germans to the events of the Night of Broken Glass. What happened was, a German diplomat by the name of Ernst von Rath was working at the German embassy in Paris on the morning of November 7th, 1938. And a 17-year-old Polish Jew by the name of Herschel Grinspan walks along and pumps five bullets into the Nazi diplomat at close range. Now, the Polish boy shot Rath as revenge for the Polish Jews who were expelled from Germany and forced into refugee camps. But two days later, on November 9th, 1938, Nazi party militants rampaged through the Jewish communities all over Germany as retribution. They burned hundreds of synagogues, smashed more than 7,000 Jewish shops and killed 91 Jews outright. This form of collective punishment is a classic outcome of dehumanization of a group. Think about it. One Polish Jew commits a political assassination and the entire German-Jewish community is terrorized for it. Kinda reminds me of a more recent incident a decade ago where a bunch of miscreants allegedly burned a train in Gujarat and hundreds of women and children are raped and murdered as revenge simply because they share the same religious and cultural identity as the perpetrators of the train burning. Coming back to the night of broken glass, a fine of 1 billion marks was imposed collectively on the Jews of Germany and their insurance reimbursements were confiscated by the German state in order to compensate for incidental damages done to non-Jewish property during the pogrom. Again, reminds me of the recent anti-CA NRC protests in Uttar Pradesh, where we saw the state police caught on CCTV cameras destroying private property and vehicles in Muslim neighborhoods. And then, a section of Muslims handed over a demand draft of Rs 6.27 lakh to the Bulanshahar district administration to compensate for damages to property caused during the protests. Do you see how this collective blame and victimization works? I quote Robert Paxton again on this event from 1938. It is clear now that many ordinary Germans were offended by the brutalities carried out under their windows. Yet, their widespread distaste was transitory and without lasting effect. If we can understand the failure of the judicial system or of the civilian authorities, or of citizen opposition to put any brakes on Hitler in November 1938, we have begun to understand the wider circles of individual and institutional acquiescence 
within which a militant minority was able to free itself sufficiently from constraints to be able to carry out genocide in a sophisticated and civilized country end quote how many times have we heard decent folks amongst us even our own relatives say oh well i'm completely against murdering women and children but 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 remember who burned the train at godhra station first and many a times if there is no burning train then the fascists will create one take for example the reichstag fire which was started by nazis themselves and then pinned on a mentally diminished dutch communist they picked up at a bar by the name of marinus van der loo and we know this because hans jesevius an official in the prussian ministry of the interiors at the time testified at the nuremberg trial that it was gebels who first thought of setting the reichstag on fire also rudolf diels the gestapo chief added in an affidavit that Hermann Göring knew exactly how the fire was to be started and had ordered him to prepare prior to the fire a list of people who were to be arrested immediately after it. Göring was Hitler's sidekick who later went on to become the head of the Luftwaffe. And so basically the Nazis used the event as a pretext to sign a decree for protection of the people and state. using emergency powers under article 48 the reichstag fire decree suspended all legal protection of speech assembly property and personal liberty and permitted the authorities to arrest suspected terrorists that is of course communists at will and it gave the federal government authority over the state government's police power now this is something you must be very weary of authoritarians will usually create an event like the reichstag fire in order to suspend your freedoms to protect you from a boogeyman that they have created themselves the boogeyman may be a foreign enemy allegedly infiltrating our loc or it could be a bunch of anti-national seditious students who apparently will bring down the republic if their rights are not curbed and these reichstag fires usually come up when authoritarians feel insecure when they feel they are losing popularity or their grip on power or when the economy is doing badly and everyone is grumbling about it the reichstag fire serves as the perfect distraction it serves to rile up nationalistic fervor and an excuse to suspend civil rights and in such times staying neutral is as good as siding with the establishment I quote Paxton Most citizens of fascist regimes accepted things as they were The most interesting cases are people who never joined the party and who even objected to certain aspects of the regime but who accommodated because its accomplishments overlapped with some of the things they wanted while the alternatives all seemed worse end quote How many times have you heard if not the incumbents then who Rahul Gandhi is a pappu and maybe you don't want a quasi theocracy but you want good roads and a bullet train so you are willing to tolerate terror suspects and pogrom specialists in the parliament and that my friends is exactly the sort of mentality that normalizes totalitarianism 
It's the kind of mentality that takes a country from saying anti-Semitic conspiracies in hushed tones behind closed doors to full-fledged concentration camps. And it has happened so many times. Germany, Armenia, Bosnia. Impossible to cover all of them in one episode. There's one more category of tacit neutral supporters that I must add here. People who claim they don't endorse far-right Hindutva Thagari, but they voted for their anti-corruption agenda. There is no better example of the shocking ignorance of educated Indians than this. Anti-corruption has been every authoritarian's favourite agenda throughout history. Every dictator and strongman from Iranian mullahs to Bolsonaro in Brazil to Chavez in Venezuela, they, all of them rode the anti-corruption wave. In India, corruption is a cultural problem. I work on an offshore oil rig with workers who hail from all corners of the country. In a way, the rig is a microcosm of India itself. And I see people hoarding coveralls and safety items and consumables in their personal lockers, more pairs than they can possibly use in a whole year, and creating artificial shortages. I see it all the time. Even though the stuff comes every month in cargo containers. I see folks carry imported tools and wrenches home when they sign off. And I hear stories of how even at the village gram panchayat level, elections involve massive bribes to sway votes. If you have read Catherine Iban's Bottle of Lies, you'd know that the kind of criminality and corruption in India's private pharma companies make Robert Mugabe look like an amateur. So if you think that only one political party has a corruption problem and only one allegedly squeaky clean strongman who hobnobs with crony capitalists and uses their private jets during campaigning is going to clean this country up, you're one of two things. You're either extremely naive or you are hiding behind this charade of anti-corruption but you secretly endorse the toxic identity politics that these authoritarians stand for. Now, moving on. How do you identify signs of totalitarianism early on? Professor Levitsky and Ziblatt list the four key indicators of authoritarian behavior in How Democracies Die. And I quote the first one. Rejection of democratic rules of the game. Do they reject the constitution or express a willingness to violate it? Do they suggest a need for anti-democratic measures such as cancelling elections, violating or suspending the constitution, banning certain organizations, shutting down the internet, or restricting basic civil or political rights? Indicator number two, denial of the legitimacy of political opponents. Do they describe their rivals as subversives? Do they claim that their rivals constitute an existential threat either to national security or to the prevailing way of life? Seculars, anti-nationals, pachas karod ki girlfriend, etc. etc. Do they baselessly describe their partisan rivals as criminals? Do they baselessly suggest that their rivals are foreign agents in that they are secretly working in alliance with a foreign government, usually an enemy one? Indicator number three, toleration or encouragement of violence. Do they have any ties to armed gangs, militias, guerrillas, or other organizations that engage in illicit violence? Hmm. 
what would you call karni sena bajrang dal and the rss have they or their partisan allies sponsored or encouraged mob attacks have they tacitly endorsed violence by their supporters by refusing to unambiguously condemn it and to punish it indicator number 4 readiness to curtail civil liberties of opponents including media have they supported laws or policies that restrict civil liberties such as expanded libel or defamation laws or laws restricting protests criticism of government or certain civil or political organizations hmm how about putting politicians under house arrest for months together have they threatened to take legal or other punitive action against critics in rival parties civil society or the media have they praised repressive measures taken by other governments either in the past or elsewhere in the world if you think about it all four indicators are pretty much present in india you'll find numerous examples that will tick all four boxes moving on demagogues attack their critics in harsh and provocative terms as enemies as subversives and even as terrorists when he first ran for president hugo chavez described his opponents as rancid pigs and squalid oligarchs as president he called his critics enemies and traitors fujimori linked his opponents to terrorism and drug trafficking italian prime minister silvio berlusconi attacked judges who ruled against him as communists journalists also became targets ecuadorian president rafael correa called the media a grave political enemy that has to be defeated turkey's erdogan accused journalists of propagating terrorism well in india when university students are protesting the hindi news media is covering snowfall in nainital i'm not even joking on this that's exactly what they were doing on the night of the jamia protests well you either cover snowfall or you get slapped by a notice from the enforcement directorate just ask ndtv news similarly in russia after vladimir gusinsky's independent ntv television network earned a reputation for being a pain in the neck the putin government unleashed the tax authorities on gusinsky they arrested him for financial misappropriation and he was later offered a deal straight out of a bad mafia movie give up ntv in exchange for freedom of course he had to take the deal and turn over ntv to the giant government controlled energy company gazprom and then he fled the country in just about every case of democratic breakdown would be authoritarians from franco hitler and mussolini in interwar europe to marco castro and pinochet during the cold war to putin chavez and erdogan all of them have justified their consolidation of power by labeling their opponents as existential threats it was voltaire who said those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities this is especially true today in the age of social media and whatsapp so safeguard yourself don't fall for fascist propaganda learn from history so that you're not doomed to repeat it and with that i'll end this episode thanks for tuning in and if you have any suggestions and feedback 
or ideas for what you'd like covered in the next one, get in touch on Twitter. My handle is at ZMadon, that's at Z-M-A-D-O-N. Please leave your comments. Until next time. Thank you.